everyone. I am Carla Jakubovic, hostess of the Swiss Learning Podcast, and thanks for listening. Swiss Learning represents 13 prestigious schools in Switzerland, and they're experts at finding the right fit for each student. On this podcast, we will showcase alumni from each one of these schools to share their success stories and insights with you. Today, I'm incredibly thrilled to be welcoming Dr. Antonio Tricoli, an alumnus from Institute Montana Zuckerberg. Antonio is a professor of engineering at the University of Sydney, and his research specializes in developing wearable nanotechnologies. Antonio, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Carla. It's a great pleasure being with you today. Antonio, how old were you when you went to Montana? Was it hard being away from family in the beginning? Well, at the time, I was only 14, and um, I was growing up in a small town in South Italy, Crotone. So suddenly going from the coast up to the Swiss Alps was a big change, and it wasn't easy. Um, I remember perhaps one of the biggest challenge, in addition to the weather, you can imagine it was a bit colder, uh, was the food. I, you cannot imagine how much I was missing my mom food. <laughs> but, <laughs> but this gave me a motivation to start cooking myself. So I started learning my um, cooking skills in Switzerland. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, what were some of your favorite subjects in school? Well, it's kind of funny because I became a professor of nanotechnology and engineering, but actually I was always interested in history, literature, philosophy, and uh, some of my best marks were actually in these disciplines. And I was also interested in math, but I thought math was more kind of a, um, an hobby, something you do like, you know, uh, when you have free times. But the real thing, interesting things for me was discovering what has happened in the past and why how people have built their life. That's interesting because uh, I actually heard you say in an interview that you were never interested in, in, in being a scientist, that you were just always trying to make something new. Were you able to explore this curiosity uh, in Montana? Well, I think Montana was part of my inspiration because it set me in contact at a young age with so many different cultures. Um, you can imagine, as Italian, we may be proud of specific things. So, like the way we cook pasta, for example. So it took me a while to adapt to different things. And um, I have to say, I went back to my Italian pasta style. <laughs> but at the same time, <laughs> this kind of uh, motivated my and opened my brain to the possibility that there are so many different things to explore, both in our world, you know, different cultures, but also in science. So I guess uh, the curiosity maybe was one of the things that inspired me most. Um, in Montana. What role do you think the school played in propelling you forward during this phase? Well, I, I have to say we were kind of lucky because we were in a small class. Most of the class in Montana were small. I remember we were about seven students. So we had a very close interaction with our teachers and uh, our teachers were excellent. Um, just reminding in some, Anginolfi, professor of philosophy, or Katia Kaffer, professor of mathematics. Um, they really gave them all to actually not only teach us the subject, but make us love them. So I guess in that sense, uh, the school helped a lot seeing uh, learning not such as things you have to do because else your mom is not going to give you the cookies, but much more into something <laughs> that um, it's interesting and you may do it in a passionate way. Absolutely. And parents have several motivations for choosing to send their children to boarding school. You know, exposure to a multicultural environment, learning discipline at a young age, 
learning additional languages, building a valuable network of friends, but also getting their child ready and, and increasing their chances of being admitted to a distinguished university. Um, since you went, since you attended ETH Zurich, could you tell us what that process was like for you? Well, this is also a funny story because that time I was thinking to apply to the States. Um, you know, coming from Italy, going to Switzerland, I wanted to explore something new. And so I did apply to some of the best universities overseas where I also got a mission, um, not a scholarship at that time. And you can imagine tuition fee in the States can also be significant. Mm -hmm. And um, so I was considering whether I should join MIT or Caltech at that time, or maybe Montreal in, um, in Montreal, uh, in McGill in Montreal. But um, then a colleague of mine, a Swiss uh, student from the Swiss school at Montana, told me, yeah, you know, there is this local university, which is quite good, ETH Zurich, why don't you go there? And I was not aware of ETH at that time. So, okay, let's, why not? I it seems to be a bit more reasonable in terms of fees. And so I checked um, that university. I found it was actually one of the best in the world, and it is actually. Um, I think it's ranked six in the QS world ranking this year. And um, the process was quite smooth. So basically having a recognized Swiss Italian degree, you were able to directly enroll with, um, um, with minimal amount of bureaucracy. That's good. Um... Now, shifting gears to your professional accomplishments, what did it for me when I was researching you is that you've set out to provide equitable access to health. You worry about people who have long commutes to access doctors, uh, namely people in rural areas and remote communities. And you're essentially trying to bridge this gap by developing wearable nanotechnology through miniaturized sensors that would measure the presence of specific substances in our breath, in our blood, in our sweat, with very high sensitivity and accuracy. And a possible outcome of this technology would be skin cancer prevention, uh, because someone wearing this technology will receive a warning if their sun exposure is getting too high and if they're entering the danger zone. But as if as with every new technology, I would anticipate this to be incredibly pricey initially, as cell phones and computers once were. So what timeline do you envision until this technology becomes affordable? Would you predict us uh, to be seeing this within the next, let's say, 10 years? <clears throat> so that's a very good question. Thank you, Carla. Um, a lot, yeah, there are many things that I would like to say here. Let me start by saying, do you remember when we shifted from the old phones, Nokia with the snake, to the iPhone? Absolutely. It happened suddenly, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, suddenly you have a world of new opportunity. But the interesting thing is that the technology was already there. It was just not utilized. And uh, the cost was a bit more. But it was worth because basically you were carrying a mini computer on your hands. So now it's something similar is happening. Uh, basically, the Fitbit smartwatches are quite almost there where you could have this wearable companion diagnostics. Basically, the vision there is that you don't wait till you're sick to see a doctor and you have a chronic condition which may be not possible or very hard to cure. You are proactive. So basically, you get your health in your hands. And uh, by this, you take responsibility of your future and also you reduce significantly um, the things you may need to experience in terms of health and diseases, right? So this is uh, the basic concept. Now, this goes through a spread of technologies. Some, as you mentioned, are 
maybe are very good to be wearable because, for example, looking at metabolic indicators, telling you, are we eating too much, too little? When is it too little and what effect it has on our body? Or maybe what kind of food causes a stomach ache, right? Or do we have any indicator that we are developing perhaps something as bad as a cancer? And can we do that? Some other technologies instead can also be miniaturized, but there needs to be where they can be, for example, in a point of care center like such a pharmacies or a GP, where you go to a GP perhaps once every three months, and you can imagine taking a droplet of blood or another fluid like a tear or saliva, and then do a very rapid scan of viral disease marker. And this basically can help keeping you in track. Now, with respect to the timeline, this depends a bit how much investment is um, done into this kind of technologies. Um, the hardest things is, when you try to miniaturize blood or other fluid analysis, when I say other fluid, I mean things that you can take like sweat or breath, so non-invasive technologies, right? And how do you get it enough selective? How do you measure sufficient amount of marks? But uh, from a point of view where that's my field of expertise, I think we, have, uh, we are quite there. We just have to decide which kind of mark we want to monitor continuously or semi-continuously or frequently, and then the technology is able to do that. So I guess it's just missing a big focus investment, such as the Apple did for the iPhone. Mm -hmm. but, but that's encouraging to know that the ability to be proactive about our own health is around the corner. So that's something for, for all of us to look forward to. And uh, one of the reasons that your work truly interested me is because I've had skin cancer myself, very possibly caused by excessive exposure to sun. Um, you know, have spent, spent half of my life in Brazil, half of my life in Miami, in the US constantly under the sun. So I really couldn't stop reading about your work which then led me to find out that you're on to a lot more than just skin cancer prevention. This technology can help with several other health issues. I read something about lung cancer diagnosis, monitoring diabetes. Could you tell us more about that? So basically, the underlying technology is similar. We use uh, nanostructures, nanomaterials, as a very tiny receptor to measure molecules or photons, which means basically light. And uh, with that, we can get an immediate reading of the surrounding. Now, that's why this technology may spread across various things, because if you have a biomarker, for example, for lung cancer, which can be exiled by your uh, breath, then with this very tiny detector, we are able to measure it. Now, why do you need tiny detector? One reason is that they have to be miniaturized, obviously. But the other reason is that just to give you a comparison, if um, if you have an atom touching your skin, you will not feel it, right? Mm -hmm. But now if your skin is as small as the atom, it would feel it, right? right? So that's why you need miniaturization to be able to detect this tiny amount of um, of biomarkers, often non-invasive biomarkers, such as the one that are exiled by breath. And similar things apply to metabolic diseases, such as diabetes. So basically, um, one of the main biomarkers, non-invasive biomarkers for diabetes type 1, is acetone. And acetone is highly volatile, it's a bit like ethanol. And once it goes up in concentration in your blood, it comes out of your mouth. 
And like this, we can prevent, for example, dangerous condition like ketoacidosis, which is main, one of the main driver of the death uh, by diabetes type one, because we can measure it not invasively and very rapidly. So the, the implication of this are quite broad, and that goes back to my previous point. It is not much more in developing the small detectors that can detect these molecules, but in how we integrate them together, bring them together in a small device and make them work intelligently. And there you can think about artificial intelligence and machine learning to try to then give us something that we can understand. So basically the interface between the, let's say, mechanistic uh, detector and the humans that's missing. And it's really interesting, and, and I think a huge game changer about this advancement is that we would be able to show up to the doctor's office with actual data. Can you talk about some of the practical benefits and implications of this? Well, I think these are wide ranging. And uh, as you can imagine, one thing is we wouldn't be any more so ignorant and anxious about our own health. I, I think it's uh, kind of interesting that we are able to predict and measure the temperature on Alpha Centauri, which is light years away from us, but we cannot know what's happening a few millimeters under our skin. Absolutely. And, um, and this is not surprising. And uh, here I don't want to go after Elon Musk, but uh, we can either focus on putting all our investment into sending cars into space, or we can actually, <laughs> we can try to solve some of the critical issues of our societies. This goes obviously from climate change, which I think is something where many scientists and colleagues of mine are investing their time to health. And I guess the COVID pandemic is showing that developing technology able to detect diseases viral pathogens and also viral infection, but as well many other things as huge potential and is highly necessary. Now, some implication of these are that instead of diabetes type, developing diabetes type 1, which is reversible, we may be able to detect it before and organ damage and provide the treatment. So a person may not have to live lifelong with this disease. This applies also to many other like conditions such as asthma, which is something very um, difficult to deal with and will impact your life once you have fully developed it chronic. So basically, this means going one step ahead of your body before things happen which are reversible and keeping it on the right track. Now, people try to do this you know, by uh, often following specific diets or specific advice, but the truth is that each one of us is very different. So something that may be good for me, for example, mozzarella, may not be so much good for, I don't know, someone else from another country. And so basically understanding, being able to see what's happened to us as a function of what we do is kind of essential for the, we call it deep personalization of medicine, which means you're not anymore treated as a number with a statistic, with a background, male, female, age, no. The treatment is actually focused on you and your unique set of genotype genome and uh, phenotyping, basically what you went through your life. That's phenomenal. And you're speaking of uh, customization and, and personalizing it. And it makes me think of uh, the use of nanotechnology in sports, right? We hear about sweat testing to determine uh, the player's hydration and electrolyte replenishment uh, needs. Do European soccer clubs already use similar technology to the one that we're talking about to evaluate uh, the athlete's performance and, and personal needs? Well, this is very, this kind of companion diagnostic type of analysis are very important to determine the training regime. And many of us have experienced while 
while hedging, I still love soccer and try to play soccer as much as I can, that I cannot do it as much because um, unfortunately my muscles do not recover as I would like to. And now if you go a bit earlier, this happens also when you're younger, you just don't notice it. And so sometimes doing too much training may be bad for your muscle. You can produce lactose and this may not recover in time. So a lactose sensor, for example, that can measure it through your sweat and the skin you don't need to be invasive and um, are already being tested by many um, teams, such as Olympic teams, swimming even, to know what is the best regime, where to push your body to obtain the best performance. And uh, Antonio, T Thomas Edison famously said, I haven't failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that don't work. <laughs> is failure a constant reality in the life of a researcher? Well, I, I got this question once at a very important interview where I said, well, it, it's not a failure, it's just a step forward. And um, basically, uh, as much as this may sound a bit cliche, it, it is the only way to be a researcher. So you have to accept that the question you're posing is not, I want to achieve that, but I want to understand something that will lead to something new. So basically, when you understand that something you were trying to do does not work for a specific reason, you still made a step toward the right direction. So it's a bit of a, of a point of view. You have to change your mindset. Instead of being just a fast achiever, you have to move a bit more comprehensive toward a goal. I like this point of view and this mindset, and I think it, it applies to all of us who are, you know, even not in the, in the scientific field as well. We could all use a little bit of that to, to self-motivate and, and, and push forward. Uh, well, finally, I wanted to do a little rapid-fire one-word answers, uh, whatever comes to mind first uh, with you. Um, one word to describe Zug. No. <laughs> one word to describe what you miss most from school. Um, soccer. One word of advice for students who are on campus right now. Enjoy it. And uh, finally, we're at a point of the podcast where I ask our guests for some take-home value. If our students could remember just one thing from our conversation, what would you like for that to be? I'd like to remind them that actually there is infinite possibilities of what they can do with their life. And they're just at the start of their journey. So it doesn't matter how things look now. It's matter much more what their will and things will drive them to. So be open to change, be open to possibilities and enjoy this beautiful life that you're just actually starting. This is great advice. Uh, Antonio, I truly, truly enjoyed our conversation. I hope everyone else enjoyed it as much as I did. If they want to continue this conversation, can they find you on any social media or is there any way that they could communicate and reach out to you? I'm very happy to um, have other conversation with people interested and um, you can uh, look in for me in the Instagram or Facebook or um, Twitter and then also have a public email address through the University of Sydney so you can also find me there. That's awesome and if anyone else has any other questions about anything else they heard on the podcast today please feel free to email me at carla at swisslearning.com. Thank you and until next time.